Hello and welcome to The Insight. This week we're discussing terrorism trends throughout 2020 and what to expect in 2021. If you like our content, then please like, comment and subscribe on our social media channels. This week, I'm joined by the Senior Regional Analyst team, including Matt Pratton, who's the SRA for Europe, Viraj Patney for Africa, Vincent Fevrier for Americas, and me, Max Taylor, the Senior Regional Analyst for the Asia region. So the way we're going to structure this podcast this week is quite important because this is such a massive, broad topic. But before we can go anywhere with it, really, we do have to at least provide a bit of a discussion about the, the difficulties in defining what terrorism actually is. And I think it's no secret that this is difficult task and then we're going to move on to looking at two of the most uh, significant terror groups in the world right now which is the islamic state and al-qaeda we're just going to talk about some general themes from within that from that we're going to move more towards right-wing and left-wing extremism which we've seen a lot of in particularly in europe and, and, and in the americas and then finally we're going to talk about uh what we've been seeing in the news recently which is a lot of talk about which is the biggest threat to europe as a whole is it extremist extremism from islam or is extremism from the right wing and even the left wing as well and we're going to compare the the two threats and analyze statements made about that in itself and we're going to finish off just looking forward into 2021 and thinking what trends are are we do we expect to see going forwards so before we really get started with the actual podcast then i think it's wise for us to at least try and provide a bit of an outline into into what we understand as a definition of terrorism. And I think it's no secret within uh, anyone who's familiar with this topic that the definition of terrorism is pretty hard to define. But I think it's at least worth trying to at least try and define a a grey area that we could use as an outline of it. And I think to kind of get a start on what some of the difficulties are of this, a recent incident that happened with Matt in your region actually in Poland was, uh, I can't remember exactly the details of it, but a VBID driven into a police station. And we were not talking. necessarily driven in. It was, uh, it was yeah. It was a um, still still actually looking into that one. Yeah. But uh, what we know so far is actually the uh, the the perpetrator uh, constructed a VBIED, uh, drove it to the police outside the police station. Looks like it was he got into the car park just outside the entrance and actually started you know just hitting the car horn in order to actually draw people in. So it was an attempted. Um, Given what he was trying to do, you could possibly say it was a attempted SVB IED or suicide vehicle born IED ambush. Yeah, and we were talking yesterday whether it's whether it was terrorism or not, and whether we should classify that as terrorism. And I think I was under the impression not so much because the motive of the attacker itself wasn't wasn't defined. And then you were saying the other way. I think that incident in itself really highlights some of the difficulties. So I guess best way to start is why would you classify that as terrorism yeah it's the for me i i i'd say where it, where it crosses a lot crosses the terrorism threshold is the tactic first of all uh, the you know uh, car bombs and suicide bombs uh you know combined into one it that is that is certainly a a tactic that a lot of terrorist groups around the world have used uh for for quite some uh, for quite some time also, just the nature of the target, it was uh, the, the perpetrator was trying to target a, uh, I suppose, a, a state institution, which is very often a, 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 another facet of terror of terrorism. Now, those those two sort of elements, Liam, uh, that's where I sort of would say it would cross the it would cross the threshold. Having said that, uh, the absence of any kind of sort of classic kind of motive that we we come across in with every kind of terrorism incident we've logged previously, that's the grey area uh, in terms of you know cl- where, whether it would be, and it's very important uh, to sort of determine. Uh, but, but having said that, it's you know like you mentioned, it's, it could go either way at the moment. I, I'm keeping a close eye on that one to see what kind of motive comes out of it. And I think we see that again with another one in your region in Montenegro of a guy who uh, blew himself up outside with, uh, was it a police station or a courthouse with a grenade. And yep. initially we thought maybe it could be an attack, but then we realized it was just a personal dispute. So it's just more mo- targets and motive and, and tactic are, are kind of the things that, that make it complicated to define. Yeah, you're spot on there. In fact, you know, when I first when I first came across that one, it was again just like the the, the one with Poland. You know, it had all the all the markers of what a, a terrorist would do. But then we sort of delved a little further. Uh, you know, it's sort of the personal conflict uh, aspect came out of it, and that ruled that ruled it out completely. Um, although, the, uh, don't want to throw a spanner in the works on this one, but with that kind with those kind of lone actor uh, lone actor kind of uh, incidents. Those two actually reminded me of a particular prisoner uh, I had to, when I was working in the prison system back in WA. Uh, it, there was a particular prisoner we had to monitor for that kind of uh, that kind of motive. Uh, they had no sort of you know 
political or social or social ideology. He yeah. just had a a, a, gr- a significant gripe with uh, you know with the with the system and some individuals, and he was willing to try and carry out an act that would that would lead a lot of people to think it was terrorism. So it's you know. Again, it just those three, those sort of three circumstances, uh, sort of contribute to make to sort of showing why it's so hard to actually define terrorism. I think that political motive is probably the most important part. But at the same time, pretty much uh, all violence in a military environment has a political motive. All wars are carried out for political motives. So just saying that political violence is terrorism simply isn't isn't sufficient. But I think you know I don't want to dwell on this for too long because we can talk all day no one's ever agreed on a definition so i don't think we are now but generally mm-hmm. as analysts one way that we've i've noticed we will do the same thing we do to and what was will help in this podcast one thing that we do when we add incidents to our terrorism theme is we generally recognize terrorism related incidents as any incident that's been uh, carried out by a group that's recognized by multiple multiple countries as an active terror group so for example al-qaeda and islamic state being quite obvious groups and uh, the other smaller groups as well yeah, or at least when the authorities define it or yeah. investigate it as an act of terrorism. Because I think yeah. uh, in certain countries, and I look at the United States, when there's no kind of federal uh, guidance or act as a law that says this is terrorism, I think a lot of things mm. get investigated as hate crimes. I get there's laws that attack some federal agents specific to that, and but it could be terrorism, but there's just no domestic yeah. uh, kind of legal standing for it. So that makes it difficult while, another country, while the U.S. recognizes foreign uh, terror organizations mm. and has yeah. a whole list of it but domestically they don't so it's more kind of extremism rather than terrorism yeah. yeah i think it depends as well on what sort of region that you look at yeah so i think you know the definition of terrorism evolves uh, it's, it has sort of evolved you know if you look at europe for example you know like traditionally if you look at africa for example you know you'd associate a terrorist attack you know with uh, or a terrorist group uh, of one you know you which is very much organized but obviously, you know, we've seen these lone wolf attacks in, uh, you know, Europe. So I think that organized element, you know, that we, you know, that, mm. that, or that element of organization that we previously associated with uh, a terrorist group, uh, it's, it sort of doesn't exist really in some areas of the world anymore. But yeah, other than that, you know, I agree with what you said, uh, you know, about tactics that they use. Uh, you know, I think these are the tactics that uh, terrorism tactics are really used by, you know, the weaker force really. Generally speaking, non-state yeah. as well, isn't it? Mm. Um, yeah. Yeah. The, the there's, I suppose, the strong element of you know carrying out an act that is intended to cause mass casualties and is designed to uh, quickly uh, invoke a, a widespread hysteria. Mm. Uh, you know, I mean, the just off the top of my head, actually, it was actually a, it was only I think yesterday I saw the reporting on the uh, commission of inquiry into. The Christchurch attacks. Yeah. Uh, I took a quick. I took a quick look at that one. Uh, that was Brenton Tarrant all the way down in New Zealand, and you know he had showed no sort of indicators of of of, of having any kind of links mm. to a specific group. And in mm-hmm. fact, the only sort of warnings that came, uh, according to the inquiry, were just moments before he actually went and shot up two mosques. Mm. Mm. Possibly a common characteristic is the the intent to cause mass yeah. casualties and. And of course, and as an effect, cause mass hysteria. Mm, yes, it's that message that they, yeah. you know, that's directed towards, you know, just beyond really the target that you know that was attacked. And I think when you look at New Zealand, it's like being associated officially with a group, whereas it's self radicalization by online means of looking at the contents of a group, but not actually having a strong link. So sometimes you get uh, an attack that's is said to be committed by ISIS, uh, the Islamic State when it might just be someone that's self-radicalized but has no actual links with anybody from that group. So it's just kind of absolutely um, the balance. Among the more sort of recent developments, that's that's just, that's that's what makes the, the threat even a little more difficult to determine is that they don't necessarily have to be part of a group. They just have to essentially you can have just a lone actor who just reads up on the group and becomes supportive yeah. mm. and carries out an attack on that group's behalf, but there's an element of deniability because there's little to no warning of it beforehand. So I think with that said, we've sort of clarified, we've clarified nothing (laughs) (laughs) other other than the fact that you can't really define terrorism and it's probably never going to have a definition either. So first thing I really want to talk about is uh, two, two, two of the biggest groups in the world, two groups that pretty much everyone has heard about, and that's Islamic State and Al-Qaeda. And just want to talk 
briefly because it covers all of our regions in some way, shape or form. I just want to talk more briefly about what we've seen in the past year from their activity and what we kind of expect to see going forward with their activity as well. So I'll start. Uh, so I'm the senior regional analyst for the Middle East region. So I've seen a lot of activity from Islamic State in particular, but also Al-Qaeda. So there's been a lot of talk recently, which links with the Africa region as well. There's been a lot of talk recently of Islamic State starting to die down in the Middle East region from what we saw back in around 2014. And instead, they're moving into Africa. So I'll pass on to you in, in a minute, Faraj. But uh, in some ways, this is true. We haven't seen the territorial control that Islamic State has had in previous years, throughout 2020. So Islamic State has, as a result, it has it's lost its revenue funding. So it used to be able to tax and, and uh, seize oil facilities in Iraq and Syria. So since Islamic State has lost a lot of its territorial control, they've also lost a lot of their revenue and its income. So in, in, as a result, they've switched more to what we'd recognize as an insurgency with obviously with terrorist tactics. So there's been lots of small small attacks in places such as Deir Azor in eastern Syria, as well as Diyala, Anbar and northern Iraq as well. And these attacks have mostly consisted of quite small cells, which is quite a, quite a contrast to what we saw back in, you know, around 2014, when Islamic State was carrying out large attacks on cities such as Mosul, and it was actually in control of major population centres. So I think to say that Islamic State is dying down in the Middle East simply isn't correct. And a lot of people use use this dying down in the Middle East sort of argument to say that they're moving to Africa, and it's simply not true. And just before I pass it on to you, Viraj, mm. another country actually that I've seen a lot about, people talk about, not so much this year, maybe at the start of this year, was Islamic State in Afghanistan. A lot of people really seem to forget about it, I think, because the Taliban are so dominant in Afghanistan that Islamic State just seems like a smaller group on the side. And a lot of people spoke about fighters from the Middle East travelling to Afghanistan this year as the Middle Eastern caliphate shrank and dissolved. And we just didn't see that. Islamic State in Afghanistan isn't the same as Islamic State in Iraq and Syria. They're two quite different organisations with actually quite limited coordination as well. And there was a lot of fears about actual physical fighters being moved from one theatre to the other. And we just and whilst there was evidence of this happening in some places, so for example in the Philippines, there has been reports of Arab fighters moving to IS groups in the Philippines. This hasn't been on a large scale. It's not like we're seeing battalion-level redeployment. So I think, generally speaking, to summarise what I just said, Yes, Islamic State's lost a lot of its territorial control, but to say it's it's no longer a threat or the threat is, is waning, I think is a bit of a poor analysis. And do we think that because there's been talks with kind of, of the withdrawal of, of troops from certain countries in the region, do you think based on that they might regain a foothold uh, in, in the area if foreign troops are leaving the area? I think it's definitely... It's definitely potential. There's definitely potential for that, especially with US troops leaving Iraq and also Afghanistan to an extent, um, simply because... As I'm sure you guys know, the the root causes of what brought Islamic State to the front was, as well as other personal reasons, it, a lot of it was related to massive corruption within local governments, very poor economic situation, poor unemployment, low, high levels of unemployment amongst young men, as well as a host of other factors. But these, many of these factors, particularly the economic ones, simply haven't gone. The governments in the region are still highly corrupt. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, work opportunities are still gone. So as US troops pull out, no solution is no long term solution has really been put in place. So we're seeing. A lot of the local governments haven't really changed much. And as a result, the grievances which allowed ISIS to rise in the first place are still, in some, to some degree, still there. So I think from a Middle East perspective, Islamic State still has quite, uh, quite, uh, quite a volatile region to try and take, uh, make, take advantage of, particularly, as you said, as US forces leave and the security forces in the regions at a tactical level struggle to deal with the more bold ISIS attacks that we may perhaps see. So moving on to Africa then, Viraj, I think I sort of handed it over to you at the start mm-hmm. there. It's about the ISIS moving into Africa. What do you have to say about that? Yeah, so in 2019, uh, ISIS claimed the first attacks in the DRC and uh, in Mozambique as well. And in 2020, just uh, in October, actually, um, ISIS claimed the first attack in Tanzania, uh, in southern Tanzania, just across the border from Mozambique, uh, the Cabo Delgado region. And this year... <clears throat> the group that's been operating in uh, northern Mozambique in the Cabo Delgado region, they've conducted a number of offensives, uh, you know, such as in uh, Mosimboa de Praia district, uh, which, you know, right now, currently they largely control. And just recently, they've also conducted a major offensive in uh, Muidumbe district. So, you know, this year we've also we've really seen, you know, the depth of capabilities of this group and the increased uh, coordination with which they, they're carrying out their attacks. But moving on to the Sahelian region, so what we've seen is growing activity in Niono Circle along the border with Mauritania. Uh, 
And this is really exemplified by the recent blockade that uh, I think it's Janium, uh, which is operating there, uh, that has, you know, they recently uh, imposed a blockade in this uh, village called Farabugu. And similarly, you know, this year we've seen an increase in hit and run attacks, you know, or skirmishes with security forces uh, in, in the Kays region, uh, you know, bordering Senegal and uh, Guinea. Uh, more specifically in the DMI and the Kita circles, but also in the Nara circle. Um, we also saw in June how, uh, and, th- and this was a, an attack claimed by uh, Al-Qaeda, um, they claimed the attack in Ivory Coast, in Northern Ivory Coast, near the border with uh, Burkina Faso. This year, you know, we, we've seen a lot of activity, you know, in Mali and in Burkina Faso towards more, more of these, uh, you know, countries bordering the coast of Western Africa. And with regards to Burkina Faso, we've seen the, these groups uh, really consolidate their, you know, the, the gains in northern Burkina Faso in the Sahel region of Burkina Faso. But also in 2019, there was... You know, a major uh, offensive that uh, security forces conducted in the Est region of Burkina Faso. And what we've seen this year is how these groups have um, sort of regained a foothold in this region of Burkina Faso. And uh, I think this is the, the worrying, really, uh, development this, this year. Actually, out of curiosity, uh, for 2020, uh, how is, uh, what's, what's Islamic, uh, sort of what sort of activity you've been noticing in, in Libya when it comes to terrorism? So in 2020, we've seen, there are reports, you know, of shelling that, you know, ISIS have claimed throughout, you know, the newsletter Al-Nava. Uh, you know, they've claimed a few shellings of bases in like Sabah, and uh, I think further south in, in Targin. Okay. Yeah. Audio. So, yeah, I think they, they do maintain activity mainly in, you know, towards more southern areas of Libya. Okay. But uh, yeah, in 2019, we saw much more activity, I'd say. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, the ISIS capabilities in Libya have been, I think severely degraded. Yeah, uh, but I think they still exist, you know, in that area. And you know, just recently, the LNA, you know, announced that they uh, they made a few arrests in Ubari uh, of alleged okay. you know, AQIM uh, militants. So it's yeah. even even with those even even with uh, those airstrikes, uh, mm. it's just goes. It always amazes me how resilient these groups can be. Yeah, it's, uh, they'll 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 adapt and they'll overcome very quickly. Mm. Yeah, so, I mean, in relation to counterterrorism operations, so you have, you've had France, you know, conducting, uh, you know, focusing their, uh, the bulk of their uh, counterterrorism operations targeting ISIS, mainly, you know, in the tri-border area. So this is the area shared by, you know, the border area shared between Mali, Burkina Faso, and Niger. And, you know, I, I, this has, again, severely degraded ISIS's uh, capabilities, you know, the strength, I'd say, you know, that combined with, Attacks between, uh, oh, sorry, clashes between uh, ISIS and Al Qaeda. It has really impacted on ISIS. So, uh, yeah, I think this is an area again to look out for in 2021. Um, with regards to Nigeria, um, we've seen fewer attacks uh, being conducted, you know, by ISIS on uh, military bases or, or forward operating bases, bec- and this is because they've changed their strategy. The Nigerian army have changed their strategy okay. uh, to the super camp strategy. Um, so, the, yeah, this has involved uh, the dismantling of these weaker, you know, poorly manned, poorly equipped uh, FOBs. Mm. Uh, and, and, yeah, this is why we've seen le- lesser attacks on, or fewer attacks on, uh, you know, Nigerian military bases. So we've seen okay. fewer casualties as well of soldiers. Yeah. yeah. Um, but at the same time, we've seen you know ISIS adapt to this as well. You know, we've seen them conduct a lot more ambushes uh, on Nigerian military convoys, civilian convoys as well. And yeah, so while that stra- you know while the super camp strategy has its advantages, you know, I'd say that uh, you know the ISIS threat really still remains. You know, and looking beyond the ISIS threat, you know, you also have the the Sheku faction of Boko Haram that continue to operate as well. Uh, of course, they recently conducted that massacre of civilians, farmers, okay. you know, just uh, northeast of Maiduguri. Um, this year, we've also seen AFRICOM uh, express concern about the growing influence of Al-Qaeda in northern, northwestern Nigeria as well. And on top of that, uh, the Sheku faction of Boko Haram, they, re- they released a video uh, in the Niger state of 
Nigeria. So again, uh, you know, th- this is again uh, further evidence of perhaps uh, expansion, you know, uh, towards more southern areas of Nigeria. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask. Has mm-hmm. their activity been primarily stuck in the north where they have their strongholds? Or is there indication that they're uh, going further south towards uh, bigger cities like Abuja? Yeah, I mean, I think northwestern Nigeria is probably, you know, that would be my primary concern at the moment because, you know, like like you said, Max, you know, you mentioned grievances mm. and, you know, the lack of governance, for example. You know, these, these are like poorly governed areas, really. Mm-hmm. So it's, and even looking at, looking at it geographically as well, you know, this is really, this will allow uh, these groups to really thrive in this area. Yeah. Yeah. So we've spoken a bit about ISIS, mm-hmm. uh, who are infamously once described as a JV to Al-Qaeda. And then Al-Qaeda itself, we've I've seen from an incident perspective, much less actual incidents from Al-Qaeda. They, they tend to operate through various affiliates as well, though. But with that said, I think Al-Qaeda does seem to have restructured this year and it seems to s- slowly be recovering from the, the ISIS gate rise very much took away from Al-Qaeda's influence, I think. I think Al-Qaeda actually lost a lot of influence among younger uh, jihadists as well who are perhaps more attracted to Islamic states, much flashier. Uh, I guess you could call it PR. Um, whereas Al-Qaeda was very much stuck with very long video recordings that just simply weren't resonating with the younger jihadists. But even so, regardless, Al-Qaeda has started to recover and it's still got its major strongholds, such as Iraq and Syria. So in Syria, there's a group of Huras al-Din based in rebel-held Syria who are frequently getting targeted by the Americans, actually. But also uh, in Afghanistan, this Al-Qaeda in Afghanistan has become such a massive theme, I think, particularly as we transition between the U.S. presidents now as well, because U.S. forces are leaving Afghanistan at the moment, and a big part of the U.S. withdrawal agreement with the Taliban was that the Taliban would ensure that no Al-Qaeda or other terrorist groups use Afghanistan as a base to threaten uh, USA or allies. So what's difficult about this is, in the past, the US and allies have accused uh, aspects of the Taliban called the Haqqani Network of being affiliated with Al-Qaeda. Now, the issue here is the Haqqani Network are so closely integrated with the Taliban, if not part of the Taliban, no one's 100% sure, that the US has spent all these years accusing the Haqqani Network of being AQ-affiliated, and now... They have to, as part of the withdrawal agreement, they have to demand that any AQ affiliated militants be left out, be taken out of Afghanistan. And we can, I can tell you straight away, the Taliban simply are not going to get rid of the, the Haqqani network as it's such a closely integrated part of the Taliban. Yeah. So there's already that on the horizon. And I think that's going to, if the US want that, can really stall the, 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 the withdrawal agreement. So I think that's something to keep an eye out. But again, as, we, as I was saying earlier at the start, AQ is operating through a series of affiliates and really extending its influence that way. And I think they seem to be putting a bit more emphasis, emphasis now as well on targeting, on, on trying to fit in with international political themes. So the recent tensions around after President Macron's speech regarding the publishing of present pictures of a Prophet Muhammad, the Al-Qaeda released multiple statements really latching onto it, really sensing the, the opportunity, I guess, to try and mm. recruit perhaps a more radicalised youth that typically haven't quite come their way and they've gone to ISIS instead. Yeah. And how about in Yemen... Um because I know with the Houthi rebels, but there also is a presence of Al-Qaeda mm. uh, in the east of the country. Yeah. Um, how are, has their activity been uh, in, in that area? Because I know when people think of Yemen, they've been concentrating on like uh, the Saudi coalition and then the Houthis uh, fighting it out. But uh, what's Al-Qaeda been up to in there? Again, uh, ACAP or Al-Qaeda Arabian province is uh, Arabian Peninsula, sorry, is uh, is, 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 is Haiti, I guess you could say. And again, like a lot of... Uh, militants in the area they've they've moved much more to an insurgency level but again i find aq and yemen quite hard to to, to generalize really because aq they, they carry out much less attacks and they do seem to clash with pretty much all sides involved in the conflict but at the same time aq and yemen is really closely affiliated with the tribal networks in the country mm-hmm. and a lot of these aq fighters have married into local tribal networks or at least have some form of agreement a lot of the time national media oversimplifies an issue involving AQ and simply frames it as AQ militants first and government forces, but it's a lot of time it's simply not that simple. It might be a tribal force that's affiliated with AQ via a marriage of a member to an AQ member. And as a result, suddenly conflicts have a much different dynamic. So AQ is very much ingrained in parts of, as you said, eastern Yemen's environment, but they're not I wouldn't say they're a major actor, but they're still a significant threat. And the instability we're seeing in Yemen and the remoteness of eastern Yemen in particular means it can potentially be used as a not so much a staging ground, but as a as a hub, I guess, for AQ militants in the Middle East region itself. 
Yeah. Uh, and I was asking because, oh, you mentioned Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula. And I think when uh, looking at the U.S. this year, there hasn't been uh, massive activity, especially when uh, compared to, say, right wing or left wing extremism within the U.S. Mm. Uh, but in May 2020, uh, a 20 year old uh, Syrian born man uh, tried to storm the naval air station in Corpus Christi. Um, but and doing in doing so, he wounded a sailor who was guarding the gate, but she managed to uh, lift up a bollard so he couldn't uh, drive the vehicle into the base, and then he later died in a shootout. But uh, within the investigation, they found out that the suspect had expressed support for al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula. Um, so that was quite interesting. I think when, again, in another part of the region, when we talk about al-Qaeda, that there was uh, in January um, of this year, uh, there were three al-Qaeda operatives who reportedly attempted to enter the U.S. via Colombia uh, after having uh, gotten uh, forged passports, um, and they had entered Colombia via Venezuela. So I think um, that that incident I found quite interesting because it shows that kind of the way certain countries, if a political situation or socioeconomic situation uh, can be taken advantage of by terrorists in order to get into uh, certain countries get forged papers and then go on to the U.S. or other Western countries. Um, I thought that was quite interesting uh, that, that they caught that. But other than that, like the activity has been uh, quite quite dull, um, and we've seen uh, besides a few arrests of, of certain individuals uh, in the U.S. that have either expressed support or given material support to ISIS or Al Qaeda, um, mm. but have been caught by the FBI and other law, law enforcement agencies. But other than that, the attacks uh, there hasn't been as as many attacks or as deadly attacks as there had been in the past. Um, so it's been quite, quite low in, in that sense. Um, but I guess in regards to Europe, Matt, has there been uh, activity uh, by ISIS or Al-Qaeda uh, in the last year? Not by ISIS, not by the groups per uh, per se. It, in fact, probably I'd, I'd say that the major trend for Europe when it comes to terrorism this year is it's been, uh, I suppose, the the key area for lone wolf factors so mm-hmm. a lot of uh, a, a lot of people who will uh, who will sort of you know uh, ha- uh, have sympathies for uh, al-qaeda and, Isl- and islamic state and will then start uh, start acting on the on the group's behalf but not having actually any mm. any kind of direct uh, direct association both uh, is and iq have really tried to drive people into that as well haven't they they've yeah. all their social media and all their publications at the moment are calling on people to basically go out and carry out lone wolf stabbing attacks like you said so i think absolutely see a lot of yeah, and also one thing I've been noticing with uh, with terrorism uh, incidents in Europe this year is carry out a terrorist attack. They've shown that you don't need necessarily need a, mm-hmm. uh, the kind of sophistication it would require to make a, a VBIED mm-hmm. or even um, or even sort of a, a Bataclan style attack or even the one in in uh, in Vienna this year. It would, that was simply a, a bunch of AK forty sevens and just going through the streets and, and and shooting as many people as possible. But vast majority have been a you know a uh, Islamic State or Al Qaeda sympathizer grabs a knife and mm. just goes on a stabbing rampage. Um, mm. Of course, there was, or even there's been the cases of uh, beheadings, uh, the, the 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 murder of the murder the beheading of Samuel Patti by mm. uh, by a, a Chechen, and he's actually, uh, from what I can tell, recently that individual was given a hero's funeral mm. back in Chechnya. And the other, I suppose, third spillover effect of that, well. Yeah, third spillover effect that comes to mind is the chances of copycat attacks that occur afterwards. I mean, following the beheading of Samuel Patti, they started noticing across France quite a few instances of other uh, attempted stabbing attacks. And then there was the uh, attack down in Nice. And and that's sort of been noticed elsewhere. uh, elsewhere. And uh, another probably... Another thing that comes to mind, actually, what uh, what I've noticed in terrorism in Europe is actually what you were mentioning with Colombia, with those uh, three was it three Al Qaeda? Yeah. They gained, uh, you know, had had fake passports and were trying to get to the US through third countries. Kind of a similar trait is uh, occurs with uh, with uh, terrorism in mm-hmm. Europe. The Nice, the attacker in Nice, the Tunisian national, barely a month before that attack, he had actually gotten in, infiltrated Europe by posing as a refugee. And that guy uh, got, you know, disguised himself as an asylum seeker, got to Lampedusa, uh, obtained a, a, a Red Cross, uh, sort of a Red Cross sort of passport so he could move around Europe. And he got to Nice and carried out an attack. And there was actually also, not long afterwards, was an arrest in Greece, in uh, Tripoli in Greece, a Tajik national, uh, fought in Syria for Islamic State 
and then decided to cease fighting, moved to Europe and actually got into Europe and moved into moved into Greece via uh, via the smuggling route uh, to the island of Lesbos from uh, from Turkey. And even making matters even worse is that when authorities arrested him, he was living in accommodation that was set up that he obtained via the services of of an NGO. Uh, so the, the threat of terrorism in Europe it really does it not just the actual attacks themselves, but how it's spread into other fa- other other threats such as you know transnational organised crime and human trafficking. It's become of it's become very very well entrenched in those threats as well uh i, th- and I think also kind of a reaction in scotland because i think we saw with uh, vienna right after that attack uh vienna authorities and austrian authorities kind of took a hard line towards uh kind of uh, islam within austria uh, and kind of being uh, careful yeah. with that as well as france with macron kind of mm. going after kind of muslim brotherhood type um mosque and kind of being more uh trying to so find regulation and, and things like that, and even talking about kind of being stricter on border controls and things like that. So it's had quite a, a reaction within Europe, and that reaction itself can create the divisions between communities that then lead to uh, further individuals radicalizing and, and committing more attacks. Yeah, going, I mean, going after sort of, uh, you know, uh, you know, when it comes, you know, when it comes to the, the current laws that they're trying to, uh, they're debating in France, they're, you know, the, the, the backlash against those already is, uh, is, is quite significant. And even when it comes to, uh, what would, what, you know, in theory, what would be a, a more practical and easier one to look at would be border controls. That in itself is actually quite a, a tough issue to tackle because the, the, the count, the, the countering influence of there's a lot of pro immigration activism. Uh, across across Europe, the tar- the arrest of that Tajik national and the Nice attacker were <laughs> very uh, you know very clear examples of what can of of how uh, terrorism threats across Europe have mm. have uh, sort of spilled over into other ma- uh, other major issues and exacerbated them. Yeah. So with regards to the Nice attacker, was he radicalized in you know when he moved to Europe, or was he radicalized <clears throat> before uh, you know in Tunisia? Odds on, I'd say it would have been radicalized, uh, radicalized uh, back in uh, back in Tunisia. Mm. Uh, and in that regard, he may not have even been someone who was uh, sort of you know uh, became a member of a of a of a um, you know a, a, a is, uh, Islamic extremist organization. He may very well have been just a, uh, I suppose you would call it a typical lone wolf uh, these days, where they're self radicalized. So we've spoken quite a lot about Islamic terrorism, particularly Islamic State and Al Qaeda, obviously. Um, I think that kind of brings us into our next section quite nicely, which is where we're just going to focus now on right-wing and left-wing terrorism. So the two are often discussed, especially right-wing terrorism, is often discussed alongside Islamic terrorism. And I think one thing I've noticed in the past, actually, is that right-wing terrorism actually shares a lot of ideological concepts with Islamic terrorism to the point when uh, a lot of the time they're almost, albeit through very different language, they're often very, they're very much aiming for very similar things. So... What I mean by this, for example, is I think right-wing terrorism and right-wing extremism in general often looks towards defending this uh, this society that they they perceive as as perfect, as something that needs to be protected, and they see and they see that this society is under threat. And I think this is something you see in, in right-wing propaganda as well. Is a lot there's a sense that they need to protect uh, protect a certain race or a certain way of life, whatever it may be. And I think it's the same for Islamic State and Al Qaeda and other Islamic groups. I think there's a, there's a sense that they need to protect often quite traditional values. So. Whilst the two are completely opposed to each other, they almost go full circle, I guess, in that they share so much with each other. Although, with that said, there's a few, I think there's quite a lot of differences in their methods. I think uh, I personally would say I think right-wing terrorism aims less. At, well, actually, I think uh, right-wing terrorism hasn't quite developed in the way that Islamic terrorism has. I think we're still only in the very early stages of seeing sort of a revival of right-wing, particularly in Europe itself, I think. Yeah. Uh, yes and no in that regard. I mean, we'll... Ever since Anders Bering, uh, Anders Bering Brevik conducted his a- attack in Norway, that's uh, ever since, from what I've been able to notice uh, across Europe, ever since then, there's been a lot of focus of uh, European th- authorities across the continent of cracking down on, on those sort of on those sort of groups, and it's, they've been quite successful. I mean, they've constantly come across a lot of, uh, a lot of reports of uh, uh, Germany conducting lots of raids against right uh, wing groups uh, or, or even you know, neo Nazi groups. So when it comes to right wing groups at the moment they're still out there uh although because they've been they, they've been sort of you know the focus of a lot of, of a lot of uh security agencies across europe they've really had to develop uh, a, a a high degree of operational security very similar to 
what I'd, uh, what would be noticed amongst the sort of high levels of Al Qaeda and, uh, and and Islamic State. Um, but they're certainly out there. Mm. Uh, they 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 haven't been able to get back to what they ideally they'd like to be able like to be able to carry out the sort of stuff that a lot of uh, Islamic extremists do with a uh, with lone wolf attacks. But it's very difficult to do. Um, yeah, they what, often get caught, like you yeah, said, weather mm. raids. They often get caught within planning stages, at least. Oh yeah, uh, something in, like that. So it's. In fact, um, what you, in fact, you just reminded me of just in uh, one of the instances we uh, checked out recently was uh, the uh, the Quedenkin protests in Dusseldorf. Mm-hmm. There was a, a right wing group there called Hoge- uh, Hogesa, uh, hooligans versus Salafists, and the the police, from what I can tell in uh, open source reports, the police knew who these guys were. the uh, The moment they turned up to the Quedenkin protests, and and it was they planned that they were going to you know meet up at a separate location and then go to the Quidenkin protest as a way of mixing in with that crowd uh, in, a, in a way to provoke an Antifa protest to come to them. But police, from what I can tell, they knew who these guys were and the moment they started turning up, they just got them straight out of there. I think so, in, in Europe, uh, I wonder, because 2020 COVID-19 has dominated the news, has, uh, has that played uh, a factor in the rise of left or right wing kind of ex- extremism? Um, and I, I ask because I kind of in the U.S. I've kind of seen it uh, with certain plots uh, by right wing individuals and even left wing uh, of kind of using COVID-19 or uh, COVID-19 being the reason for them to kind of commit an attack, whether it be the train engineer uh, who tried to derail the train into the USNS Mercy in the port of Los Angeles because he thought that the ship was there for nefarious purposes uh, rather than actually treating COVID-19 patients. And there was another plot in Missouri uh, where a guy died in a shootout with authorities uh, and he had been planning to bomb a hospital that had COVID-19 patients in it. So I think has COVID-19 kind of played a factor within the extremism and types of attacks or potential attacks that you've seen in, in Europe? Yeah, it uh, hasn't really manifested in attacks yet, but what I've been noticing is that with a lot of the anti-lockdown sentiment, that is providing a uh, an opportunity for uh, for right-wing groups uh, across across Europe. Um, it's though I mean when, when the uh, a lot of the anti-lockdown protests focus on uh, you know very pro- sort of you know very. Uh, What's the word I'm looking for here? Uh, sort of pillars of Western civilization. So, uh, you know, free individual free individual freedom for uh, for example, and 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 similar values, which a lot of right wing groups use as, as a way to appeal to potential groups. So, at the moment, what I'm noticing in Europe is the right wing extremists are trying to. You know, I, I think they're, from what I can tell, they're trying to recruit uh, people from anti lockdown protests. So try and Gain their gain their trust, sort of you know, sort of uh, you know, establish some some common ground which they can then use to bol- uh, bolster their own organisations. More as kind of right wing from a anti government type viewpoint, or that, that have grievances rather than kind of right wing when we see like racially motivated type uh, groups. Um, yep, that because is, of how COVID's kind of worked out. That is one of the key talking points that a lot of right wing groups are able to. Uh, a sort of you know gain a sort of gain buy-in and trust with anti-lockdown protests because they can have they have that anti-government appeal that a lot of uh, anti-lockdown protesters uh, you know uh, have at the at the moment. Yeah, and I think it's it's I think it's important that kind of an anti-government kind of sentiment and ideology not only is right wing but it's also left wing as well. And so, oh yeah, because I think uh, if we put everything on the right wing, then I think it shows bias. But it definitely is a, a two way street. And I think in the US, when talking kind of again about COVID nineteen and how it's uh, led to certain plots and certain groups, uh, we saw kind of uh, kidnapping uh, plot uh, disrupted that were looking at uh, targeting the governor of Michigan. Oh, yeah. well, uh, and I think of yeah. another governor, I think Virginia or North Carolina, one of those states, but they were targeting, uh, they wanted, they planned to kind of storm the capital of Michigan, kidnap the governor, and then kind of hold her on a trial and potentially execute her. But if it was kind of that sentiment that the governors were uh, holding too much power and taking too many steps to try to lock down the states in order to kind of stem the flow of COVID cases. And so I think in 2020, I think within the U.S., the, the growing sentiment of anti-government groups has, has grown quite a lot, and we've seen it. Uh, and I think kind of the divisions as well from protests uh, that have happened since May with the death of George Floyd has also created that that, that situation uh, that's divided the nation enough to kind of create those types of extremists. 
Yeah, the uh, it's it's interesting though with that when it comes to sort of left wing extremists. I've I mean I've been noting this with noticing this with Europe so far, is with a lot of left wing extremist groups, uh, Antifa, etc., Extinction Rebellion, they're they're actually taking a bit more of a pro government stance at the moment, uh, mainly, and and I think that the from what I can tell so far, the idea of it being is to sort of you know. Uh, in, you know, be pro-government at the moment to increase, uh, to sort of encourage further spending and further resources on healthcare and whatnot. And because they're so expensive, it's a very quick way for uh, states to go bankrupt. And I think for a lot of a lot of left-wing, I mean, this is what I'm noticing in Europe any, uh, at the moment is that's how they're trying to make their anti-government uh, sentiment sort of uh, uh, sort of make their anti-government uh, sentiment sort of manifest is is uh, counter protest against anti-lockdown uh, movements um, on the basis of that uh, you know it goes against what they want what they want which is increased spending on on health on healthcare. Also, they see uh, Antifa, especially. They see the Quedenkin movement in Germany, for example. As far as they're concerned, they're no, they're, they just see them as, as Nazis, full stop. Um, but uh, in a way of a lot of left-wing extremist groups, they are anti-government in a way that they just want to sort of you know encourage states to send themselves bankrupt rather than sort of you know go against uh, you know sort of protest against the the measures they're implementing. So, do you think that we'll see more? You know left-wing and right-wing activity going forward like in 2021 or i think so yeah. it's uh i mean from what i can tell the the longer covid 19 regulations and lockdowns stay in place uh that's mm. going to make matters that's just going to make matters worse well, i think i think I, I tend to agree with that uh, looking from kind of a u.s perspective uh, i think with covid 19 with lockdown restrictions which we may see an increase of even mass mandates depending uh, on what uh President-elect Biden decides to do when he does come into office, um, depending on how lawsuits end up. Uh, but I think that in addition to kind of a racial divide and the social uh, political divide uh, that we've seen since the death of George Floyd in May uh, with ongoing protests since then, uh, that led to a rise in activity from the left with Antifa, with Portland, Seattle, uh, auto- autonomous zones kind of being uh, bill and things like that, but you kind of from from their activity, you see from like Antifa, you see attacks on courthouses, uh, police officers, uh, so kind of that very kind of anti-establishment uh, type of attacks with arson attacks being uh, qu- quite common. Uh, we saw the third precinct in Minneapolis early on getting uh, attack uh, with the withdrawal of police officers and a police station being attacked with Molotov cocktails and the likes. Um, and in terms of tactics, we've also seen kind of at least from the right a rise in uh, vehicle attacks because i think the protests have been good at basically bringing both sides on each side of the street and kind of yelling at each other and create that level of tension and we've seen because the protests have lasted so long we've seen a rise in vehicle attacks targeting protesters and it's been mainly from the right but there has also been from the left attacks so there was an attack in in colorado uh, on a defend the police uh, protest where where left-wing extremists kind of drove through um so they haven't been as deadly as could have been in Charlottesville or anything like that before, but uh, the frequency of those types of attacks ha- has because of kind of a divide that, that we've seen. And I think that divide, uh, the longer it continues, will will lead to more more of those types of incidents. And I think that's kind of when we talk about the outlook for 2021, I think the ramifications of COVID-19, the economic fallout, will be a significant factor in do we see a rise in 2021 or not. Yeah, I think something... I'm often quite guilty about as well with particularly the American groups is uh, there's a lot of groups in, in the States and in Europe as well that are anti-government but not strictly speaking right wing yeah. so uh, I guess you could say libertarian sort of line of thought the Bugulu uh, yeah the Bugulu great example yeah. yeah and I think as analysts in particular we're very guilty of just wanting to frame this quite complex issue just as left versus right and I think going forwards as well with lockdown protests, we're going to see a lot more of these just generic anti-government. They don't really care if the government's left or right. They're just anti the concept of government. We're going to see a lot more of them. And I also think something that we're going to have to be careful of is I personally, I think a lot of, in America, for example, they're often armed like the Boogaloo movement. They're often going to be framed as right wing. And, so, and I think a lot of their members do harbour right wing views. So in some, so again, it's a grey area. Like a lot of their members may have right wing views or right wing sympathies, but it doesn't necessarily, strictly speaking, make the group right wing. The group no. itself claims to be apolitical. So I think that's this apolitical almost is anti-government in general, whether it be left or right. I think that's something, particularly in America, I think we're going to see quite a lot of actually, particularly as these lockdown protests take more of an impact on our day-to-day lives, which is 
going to trigger a lot of these groups, I think. No, absolutely. And I think that's, yeah, with the Boogaloo uh, movement and things like that, we've seen them at both right wing protests and left wing yeah. protests. So yeah. it's it's kind of hard to kind of differentiate uh, them. And uh, often I've, I've seen uh, kind of uh, other companies and other groups kind of start this other category where yeah. it, it's mm-hmm. one that doesn't fit left or right and it's just there. And I think that anti-government sentiment uh, is going to play a factor. And we've seen it with a drive-by shooting in front of a, a federal building in Oakland that killed a, a security officer. And that was from uh, a member of the Boogaloo movement uh, who was later mm. um, detained. Um, but yeah, so, and I think an important thing, I think it's looking at kind of the groups you kind of tend to see in, in certain uh, movements like the Boogaloo movement, like ex-army or um, armed forces, people who have that type of military training, uh, which can, you could maybe potentially see that it could be more deadly. While le- like left, you kind of see a lot of academic. Uh, so I think that's a differentiation that we kind of, would be interesting to kind of dig further into mm-hmm. uh, at some point yeah, to kind of see uh, how that could affect. Yeah, I, th- I think you mentioned in previous podcasts, uh, I think during the U- U.S. election, how, uh, you know, there's, there's just generally an increase in, uh, you know, the activities of right-wing or anti-government groups in in the U.S. Yeah, like uh, militia's Democratic yeah. president, that, that activity mm-hmm. time tends to rise and then kind of decrease again. Uh, so if with Biden kind mm-hmm. of having, uh, if he becomes president, when he becomes president, will will we see that rise in, in militias or not? Because mm. um, ultimately that kidnapping plot against the governor of Michigan was by individuals who had links to a militia uh, within Michigan and I think in other states as well. Mm. Um, but yeah. So in the context of Europe, I think sort of moving on a little bit and t- taking it back to the Islamic side of things as well, we see a lot of chat these days and a lot of police reports now as well about which is the biggest threat to Europe and to the UK, for example. Is it Islamic terrorism or is it right-wing terrorism? And there does seem to be a growing shift towards uh, the assumption now being that right-wing terrorism presents more of a threat. And I'm not 100% sure that this is the best way to frame it. I think right-wing terrorism is growing faster than Islamic terrorism is. But when you look at the number of attacks this year in Europe and in the UK, the majority of them have been, I guess, lone wolf Islamic attacks. And, and whilst there have been right-wing attacks as well, the the majority have been Islamic attacks. So I think to say that right-wing terrorism is a bigger threat to me just doesn't seem right. But I think to to highlight the speed with which right-wing terrorism in particular is growing in Europe certainly is worth doing. Just to say it's a bigger threat it seems uh, premature. I think, I think through Europe, there's right-wing groups uh, sort of they're focusing more on a recruiting drive at the, at the moment, um, but the, you know ne- ne- never say never uh, with regards to sort of Islamic extremism, uh, Islamic terrorism uh, certainly. I'd say it certainly is the case with regards to uh, with regards to both Europe and the UK. Um, although there is possibility for the IRA to make a bit of a comeback, I've been uh, I keep been trying to keep an eye on Northern Ireland as much as possible. But at the moment, that seems to be more blended with organised crime. But with regards uh, to Islamic, I think their, their comeback could be uh, based on seeing how uh, Brexit develops, whether no deal or with a deal, and how kind of yeah, that border issue that's, uh, might, that could, might affect the group. Yep. That's that's definitely something uh, that we'll need to keep an eye on. But well, so I think to come back to that to that initial question that you pose in terms of right wing versus maybe Islamic uh, extremism and terrorism, kind of who who threatens the mm. most? I think it, it's quite a complicated question, I suppose, just yeah. because I think states have maybe an easier time kind of guiding their efforts towards Islamic terrorism, since especially since two thousand one. I think most resources have been put towards that, mm. while right wing. Uh, extremism at least within the u.s is still kind of under wraps and i think they do quite well at kind of staying under the radar i think 2020 has been quite an interesting year because i think we've seen a lot more of their activities uh, compared to previous years so i think now people are aware of the threat of the number of militias that are out there because we've seen them at protest uh, of the number of individuals and how issues like covid19 can play a role so i think the well we might think that islamic uh, extremism terrorism is, is a significant threat. I think it's we need to also keep an eye mm. on on uh, the right and the left as well, just because both their numbers of activity and attacks, at least in the U.S., um, has increased uh, over last year. And that's why in October, the U.S. Uh, Department of Homeland Security released a homeland threat assessment, uh, which concluded that rac- racially and ethnically motivated violent extremists, particularly kind of white supremacist uh, extremists, would remain the most persistent and lethal, lethal threat in the U.S., um, and I think it can be because it's probably easy to radicalize with a right-wing agenda, but also because individuals tend to already be in the country, 
or domestic extremists for the most part while islamic extremists might come from other places mm. so you might be able to catch them in transit rather than um, yeah. trying to catch yeah. someone that's your neighbor that's a good point yeah, yeah. i mean yeah i agree with what you're saying but um yeah i, I think you know just judging by you know the different act- attacks carried out by, th- by these groups mm-hmm. you know you can't just just you can't just say that or because we've seen more you know no, islamic yeah. terrorist mm-hmm. attacks you know carried out in europe than right-wing uh, attacks that you know one is less of a threat than the other yeah uh, you know, but like what you said, re- the resources. I think there's there's a lot that we, you know, or the general public don't know about. You know, the resources or the the plots that you know uh, security forces have sort of um, stopped. Really, you know, yeah. by by either of these group, different types of groups. So there's also that. Yeah, that's that's actually a very interesting point. It's it's always difficult to to counter sort of you know sort of really uh, provide. I suppose a a, a public uh sort of a, a, a public version of mm. how of how persistent the threats are mm. because to to list cases of where the where extremist groups have been countered and undermined uh and sadly that means that that means exposing uh the ttps or tactics techniques and procedures that have been employed to counter those groups and the moment you make those public, <laughs> that yeah. provides them a, a, a very easy way to sort of you know do a do their own version of a after action review and figure out how to uh, avoid being detected like that ever again. Which I think it's like it's like many incidents. I think for every attack that's successful, there's probably five yeah. more yeah. that have been dismantled that we don't know about. Yep. Same with drug trafficking. For every ton of cocaine, there's a oh, yeah. that port. There's another ten that's gone through. So it's kind of yep. um, yeah. So. We've kind of touched on it briefly throughout the podcast. It's like what we can expect going forwards, which is kind of our job, I guess, to predict and sort of preempt. Um, I thought we before we finish, we should bring it up and I think maybe go around it region by region. So just in your own region, so America, Africa, Europe, uh, Middle East, and Asia. I think if we can just talk about what trends within the subject of terrorism, what trends within the subject of terrorism, we can actually see going forwards. So I'll start. Um, I think a big issue that we've seen, and it's one that Vincent brought up earlier, actually was with. Uh, uh, the revival of terror groups with the withdrawal of foreign forces in particular. So a lot of the governments that have been left behind in places such as Iraq and in Afghanistan simply aren't strong and they are heavily reliant on external funding or external military support in cases as well. And whilst they have made progress over recent years to say that these governments are now ready to stand up alone or largely alone against one of the most sort of powerful terrorist groups we've seen in recent years, I think is uh, over is, is sort of expecting too much of them. So with the U.S. forces leaving and leaving almost a, a power vacuum, I think they're the area is ripe for these militant groups to then try and capitalize on the same factors which allowed them to come to the, the front in the first place. You know, so high unemployment against young men in particular, poor economic conditions, massive corruption, and general distrust in the in the local governments. So I think personally, whilst I don't, I pers- I think it's hard to gauge whether any of these groups will make another land grab and try and seize territory. That's I think that needs a bit more of an in depth analysis. But I do think that these groups are at least going to persist, and at, uh, worst case scenario is they're going to uh, gain gain substantially more influence and potentially territory. Yeah, and I think lo- looking uh, in my region, so I think uh, in South America, and we didn't touch too much during the podcast, but you have the ELN, uh, the National Liberation Army in Colombia, and then FARC dissidents, uh, and you got Shining Path in Peru, which are kind of leftist communi- uh, communist kind of guerrillas. The activity will probably likely remain the same, and they've become quite more so drug trafficking organizations rather than kind of uh, ideologically driven, uh, but their activity will likely uh, stay the same. However, in the U.S., um, I think I, I tend to uh, probably agree with kind of the Department of Homeland Security uh, threat assessment in terms of left and right kind of being uh, more of a threat rather than Islamic terrorism, uh, at least for, for the coming year. And I think a lot of it will depend based on COVID-19 as well as uh, kind of its repercussions uh on the economy, which will likely create greater uh, income inequality. Uh, and like you say, when high unemployment and those types of kind of uh, root causes leads to kind of people um, tending to go towards groups that that might uh, have extremist views. Um, and so the, and as well as the continued social political divisions in the U.S. that we've seen grown this year, uh, particularly after the death of George Floyd, uh, based on, uh, on race uh, divisions, based on left and right divisions, uh, I think if the environment continues, we're going to keep uh, seeing um, the the same level of attacks that and incidents that we, that we've seen uh, this year. Uh, we've also seen a decline in trust in the U.S. government and its institutions uh, based surrounding 
the elections. And so that, that anti-government sentiment um, might also lead to attacks on police, on the government, on government buildings, or even po- politicians, uh, depending on how that situation unfolds with COVID-19. And I think finally, uh, there's the potential as well for kind of uh, environmental um, terrorism, I suppose, so groups that are more uh, like Extinction Rebellion, maybe not, but like more hard, uh, hardcore kind of groups uh, based on kind of a slow response from government towards the, the issue of climate change. And I think uh just to briefly mention, there was uh, recently two people that were arrested on, on terror charges in November 2020 uh, in Billing- Bellingham uh, in the state of Washington because they sabotaged rail tracks, uh, which were, uh, they said, was in support of First Nation groups in Canada uh, over the coastal gas, li- gas link uh, pipeline project in British Columbia. So I think seeing uh, those types of arrests kind of show that there are kind of anarchist mm-hmm. and, and anti-government uh, groups that will... Uh, that, that have a potential to cause serious economic damage and to businesses, whether it be oil and gas, or even just from uh, what we've been seeing, just protest activity and things like that, to vandalism on, on shops. Um, so I think we're likely going to see a similar level of, of incidents that we've recorded this year. So in Africa, uh, earlier this year, uh, Al-Shabaab carried out an attack in northern Kenya, uh, near the border with Somalia, and you know this was the Manda Bay attack. And I think this was really this really highlighted, you know, Al-Shabaab's uh, ambitions, uh, which is I think that's re- what's really interesting is you know over the past couple of months, uh, the U.S. have you know have sought uh, authorization to conduct uh, drone attacks in in parts of Kenya as well. So I think this is I, th- I think this is the concern going forward, you know, with regards to Al-Shabaab. Uh, of course, you also have uh, plans to you know over the coming weeks perhaps to uh, withdraw. U.S. troops, so you know, I mean, that makes the the, the whole situation very confusing, very perplexing. You know, the, the whole decision, you know, surrounding the U.S. withdrawal mm-hmm. from Somalia, yeah, it makes it even more uh, perplexing. Um, but also, you have tension between Kenya and Somalia over you know maritime boundaries, over Juba land as well. Uh, you know, and then you have uh, increased instability in uh, Ethiopia. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see how you know in twenty twenty one. Uh, you know, with regards to Ethiopia, how uh, this may affect their resources, uh, you know, and how, you know, this plays a role in Somalia, really. Uh, looking at Mozambique, uh, I think we'll see continued geographic ex- expansion uh, of this group. Already we've seen with uh, Altsuna in Mozambique how, you know, this year they've conducted a number of coordinated attacks, uh, you know, so they've really sh- showcased their uh, increased coordination that they're ca- carrying out these attacks and uh, the capabilities that they're employing as well. And, yeah, I think we'll see perhaps further expansion uh, towards Western, perhaps, uh, Mozambique. Um, looking at Western Africa as well, I think we'll see, again, further ex- geographical expansion, you know, such as Nigeria, as I talked about, Northwestern Nigeria, but also, you know, the coastal countries in West Africa, I mean, I think there's concern over there as well. Um, I actually talked about, uh, you know, the economic grievances, you know, uh, surrounding COVID-19 or or born out of, you know, this whole impact of COVID-19. And I think existing grievances uh, that, you know, existed beyond COVID-19 as well. Um, I think this uh, sort of relates to all of Africa, you know, including North North Africa as well. but, you know, with, with regards to the success of counterinsurgency, you know, or counterterrorism raids, uh, you know, such as targeting ISIS, you know, the tribal area of the Sahel region, I think because of the lack of joined up thinking or, you know, the lack of uh, holistic strategy, really, you know, shared by these different countries and, you know, the existing porous borders, really, you know, in the region, I think, I guess, Africa as a whole, I think this will always allow these groups to expand geographically. The easy one I can see first up is with regards to terrorism in Europe looking ahead. Uh, so Brexit is about to come into effect. Now, when that when when that finally becomes all becomes official, I think the uh, what what sort of happens with regards to if the IRA sort of makes a makes a sort of a comeback, depending on how the border between Northern Ireland and Ireland uh, shakes out. Uh, as for the other uh, other extremism and terrorism threats across Europe, uh, at the moment it would be for any kind of extremist group uh, now and looking ahead, it just looks like just opportunities are on the horizon regardless. I mean, for Islamic extremism, 
it's already well entrenched uh, across across the continent and it's uh, a lot of the a lot of the threats that come from islamic extremism all it really takes is one guy with a uh, one guy with a knife uh, running through the streets screaming a lark bar and stabbing as many people as possible um, that is certainly going to with what was seen with the beheading of Samuel Patty, the copycat attacks, and everything that's uh, the sort of you know uh, developments in France with regards to laws being uh, laws being de- um, debated. The the, re- the there's a, a lot of mem- there's a, the, there's a lot of momentum already for that to uh, for that to continue. When it comes to right wing extremism, especially as they if they successfully grow their numbers, that's where we could potentially see uh, opportunities for. Uh, right-wing extremist lone wolf attacks like we saw with uh, Anders Bering Brevik. So I think uh, key insights from this week's podcast then are in Europe, we're probably going to see an increased likelihood of lone wolf attacks from across the extremist spectrum. I think in Africa, we've seen an increased sophistication of militant groups and terrorist groups across the whole continent. In America, we've seen a rise in these uh, in confrontations between the left and right-wing extremist ideologies, and this is expected to continue, particularly in the context of the COVID-19 fallout. And in the Middle East region, and as, as well as in Central Asia, I think the uh, the US uh, withdrawal from countries such as Afghanistan and Iraq has the potential to create a power vacuum. Uh, thanks, guys. And thanks for your input in this podcast. And also thanks for your input uh, throughout the whole year, with this being the last podcast of 2020. And if you liked what you saw today, then please like, comment and subscribe on our social media channels. And we'll see you in the new year. Bye.